Zero hours. Catherine Mather. Ow! Zero hours. Hello and welcome to Zero Hours Podcast with me, Catherine Mather, where I talk to comedians and creators about the best and worst jobs they've had to do to get by. Today I'm joined by comedian Stuart Laws. How are you doing? Hello, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Lovely podcast. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Uh, we we immediately uh, froze, uh, which was um, classic classic lockdown. I think. Yeah, where well, we are, we're animals. We saw danger. We immediately both froze, mm-hmm. assessed the danger, and then got run over by the car. Yeah, <laughs> that's. Uh, I hope that I don't get run over by a car. Um, I... no, that would be awful. Genuinely awful. It was. Horrible. Uh, although it would be a, a classic end to a wonderful year, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> There's a, apparently that uh, squirrels, the reason why squirrels constantly get run over is because they evolved to dash across open spaces because that was when they were, it's at their most dangerous. So they don't look, they just run across an open space to get to cover. And then when roads came along, it sort of really messed with their sort of evolutionary survival strategy. Oh god, that's so sad. Yeah, but, they think um, they're doing the best thing. Yeah. Oh no, it's weird, isn't it, that like cars never factor in to evolution. Like you can't stop a kid <laughs> from running in front of a car, but they'll cry no. at fireworks. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> they've been around long enough now, right? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Hundred years. Surely that's enough for us all to adapt. Exactly, learn. <laughs> um, it is deliberately obtuse of children and squirrels to not learn at this point. It is, yeah. It's up to do it on purpose. And yeah. um, I don't know, I think, no, I was going to say that they deserve to get hit by cars, but I don't think any, anybody does. Look, if you want that as your quote that goes out <laughs> to all the comedy press, then absolutely fine. But I'm distancing myself right now from that. It's a bit dark, particularly two minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> But that's what we're going with. <laughs> anyway, um, I think we should probably get down uh, to what, what the people paid for. Uh, yes. What um, What's your worst job been? It's straight into worst job. Yeah, let's do it. Rate. So I, I'm trying to, th- I've been trying to think about it because like, I don't think I've had like what could classify as a straightforward just, yeah, that is an awful job. Like I've like, when I was at school, I would uh, do the cleaning after hours and I sort of quite, enjoyed that really i've had to having to mop the school cafeteria that was fine because i just got to sort of get my cd walkman out and just have a little listen to an album whilst mopping the cafeteria that was fine uh i did a paper round um none, none of them are like jobs that you dream of doing but i think they were all fine and then worked in a bar worked in a cinema and then i set up my own company as video production company and then I've done that and stand up sort of ever since so it's difficult to work out of that what the worst job is because it's sort of obviously probably mopping a floor mopping a cafeteria is probably the worst but it, it was fine um I remember when I was younger we as a family did this thing which was uh I don't know how many other families did it but it was you would put together greetings cards the companies that sold greetings cards they had all the individual components but they didn't have them all combined in the way that we all love them being presented in the shops which is an envelope a greetings card within a plastic sheath Um, so they would pay people an inordinately tiny amount per card they'd send you a big box of all these components and then you would put them all together and so for about I'd say say like a six-month period as a family, me, my sister, my dad, my mum would just be putting together greetings cards for a ridiculously small amount of money. Now I think back to, but like at the time, I think we, me and my sister were like, we were paid a percentage of it and we were buzzing about it. But then when you're 10,000 cards in, you hate the sight of green. Actually, I genuinely think that I don't really buy people cards now and just never send people cards because I'm just in my head. I'm like, what's the point? of a card i could just write a note to them on a bit of paper and give them that if, if i want to then say something nice yeah or if i do have to buy greeting cards for people i'll just buy one that's deliberately for the wrong you know 
holiday or <laughs> occasion. So like for Mother's Day, I got my mum one that said congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe this has come out from having to spend a six month period of my life when I was like 10 assembling greetings cards for a company. Oh my god, you were scarred by it. <laughs> I think maybe that's it. This is it. this is a therapy session. Yeah. I've uncovered <laughs> my issue with greetings cards. What a beautiful excuse to not buy people cards though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when I was younger we had to put greeting cards together, you know, to sort of pay the bills. So um that's why I don't <laughs> do it now. That's yes. Fine. Sorry love. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I um, I did once buy my mum a with sympathy card for their anniversary, my mum and dad's anniversary, <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. And she cried, uh, and then I was like, actually, I'm going to stop. <laughs> wow. Being I mean, good. was their marriage on the rocks? Uh, I don't think they're still together. So, um, but I mean, yeah. that doesn't mean that it wasn't. Does yeah, it? maybe they were yeah. going through a tricky period, and that was just. <laughs> <laughs> the the camel's back. Yeah, this bitch Catherine is uh, <laughs> given an inappropriate card. Um, so I definitely that... have given like condolences cards for like things like that. And it, uh, just, I think people just expect it from me now. If they do get end up with a card, they're like, right, what bullshit is this going to be? <laughs> it's so, funny, fine. right? Yeah. Funny. So I like to get like a card that says on your third birthday and then draw a two next to it, you know? It's absolutely classic. On your 32 2'd birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? Yeah, it's it's for everyone chill, relax. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. So so like how did they deliver that to you then? How, what does ten thousand greeting cards look like in a person's living room? It just is like uh, like a few huge boxes. I'm looking around for a huge box in my house. Like I mean, there is a big <laughs> box, but I don't think it's. Uh, and then they they would just our living room would just basically be that, and it would be like on a Saturday evening we would just all sit down and watch Stars in Their Eyes or something like that. And mm. whilst we're doing that, we're all having to hit our quotas. You know, <laughs> do you get time toilet breaks by your yeah, yeah. mum? My, my dad's walking back and forth, you know, just slapping a belt into his into his palm, just keeping an eye, ringing a bell every now and then. Classic weekend. Yeah, nice bit of family time. <laughs> bit of family time on a Saturday, and then Sunday afternoons. I think that was, you know, before Ski Sunday came on. Yeah, um, you got you know you've got to each knock out another two three hundred each. Yeah, you know, then it's easy money, isn't it? If you can, <laughs> if you can corral your young children into helping. Well, yeah, and I'm, I mean, like two quid is a lot of money to a ten-year-old, isn't it? Because it's all yeah, fun yeah. money. You don't exactly, have bills. To I'm, it. I'm not. I'm not spending that on an ISA. Exactly. You can buy a lot <laughs> with two pounds. And back then. It would go far. 200 penny sweets. Exactly. Oh my God, Astro Belts. I'd be on the Astro Belts big time. Love an Astro Belt. <laughs> Which one was it? Uh, it's just a long sort of uh, rope, uh, flat rope, which was yeah. like covered in like really sour sugar. Oh, I see. I, know, I didn't realise that was what, the, the official name. Yeah, the official name was Astro Belts. Um, I'm very sad that now I can't eat wham bars because my teeth can't handle it. Oh, in what in what way? Um, I feel like my teeth are in such poor condition that if I had a wham now, they would just fall immediately. One would just like rip out the filling, and another one would just tear out and expose the decayed cavity within. But delicious, absolutely delicious. So you know, maybe you know for my 40th or something like that I will celebrate I'll be like you know what I don't need teeth anymore I'm 40 I'm, I'm done yeah it's over at 40 isn't it so yeah <laughs> so that was uh the family the family job the family job yeah yeah um and I, yeah. Don't, I guess it 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 was bad because of the monotony of it and the fact I guess that we had to do it 
was probably not a good a good sign. Um, no. But again, largely fine. I'm trying to think. Basically, I think the best way to look at it is so since running this production company, which I started at the age of 18 with a friend who sort of we started we we made short films together at school, and then afterwards I was going to go to university, um, and he got like a job offer from an old head teacher of ours to come and he this old head teacher knew he made films mm -hmm. I was like can you come in and teach my pu uh, first school pupils how to make a film and so Al my colleague and friend was yeah. like oh well maybe I could ask Stuart whether he would do it with me because it's too intimidating to do it just by myself and yeah. his dad was like why don't you just ask him to set up a business with you and you do it properly yeah, and Al was like, "Oh, he's going to university, so I don't think he would do that." He was like, "Just try him, see what he says." And so Al called me, and was like, "This is the plan. What do you reckon?" I went, "Yeah, yeah, definitely, I'll do that." And then was like, had to work out how to explain to my parents that I would not be going to university, <laughs> um, and come come up with a legitimate plan about why that was okay, considering I think there was a lot of excitement about the fact that I was going to university. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then from that, we have done, you know, within that, I think there's been loads of jobs. Yeah. Because each client, each project or whatever, you end up doing certain things. So like, I know that a particularly bad shoot for me was one where I had to go and interview a doctor in Southampton on the hottest day of the year. And back in those days, the lights that we used were very hot, whereas now lights are LED and so they're quite cool. Yeah. Um, and I had to lug six bags up five flights of stairs because the elevator, I wasn't allowed to use the elevator in this hospital. Oh. Um, wearing, back then I would do things like wear a shirt because I thought that, that would make me look more professional as like a 22 year old or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, whereas I think actually it just made me look less professional. Like, who's this, what's this child doing wearing <laughs> a shirt? Um, Trying. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then set up all these lights within this tiny little office drenched in sweat and then turn all the lights on and then get more drenched in sweat yeah and interview this person about pancreatic cancer oh god so I then had to interview and you know I'm way way out of my depth but trying to ask smart follow-up questions to this doctor <laughs> who's an expert on pancreatic cancer um and then pack it all up and then lug it all the way back downstairs. It, a lot of stories will be like things like that, where it's like, I don't have the physical strength <laughs> to be able to carry certain things. Yeah. And it's also on the hottest day of the year. <laughs> things like that are pretty tough. But then I guess there's also things like, you know, we have done a lot of stuff in the healthcare world. So we have had to like interview people who are dying and or, or on palliative care, sort of like end of life care and things like that, which is emotionally, I think after a while you sort of go, oh, that is, that's quite testing because you're, you have a duty of like, um, you have a duty of care and sort of the way that you speak to them, the way that you make them comfortable to like discuss aspects essentially what it feels like to be dying and that's yeah. what I think emotionally quite tough if not um it doesn't gnarl up your hands in the way that uh, tough <laughs> manual labor can do yeah so what kind of uh why were you interviewing those people was was it for like I don't know internal hospital stuff or I'm assuming it wasn't broadcast yeah uh, well, there's a mixture of things. So we made, in 2008, we made a documentary, like a feature doc about pancreatic cancer. There was a guy that, um, through a friend, we knew of this guy called Les Niavara, who was cycling from his, uh, he had pancreatic cancer and he was cycling from his uh, hospital where he was getting treatment in, in uh, Acton. And he was cycling all the way to Krakow, which was his hometown. Yeah. Um, to sort of raise money, raise awareness. But pancreatic cancer is like one of the worst in terms of death rates and the death, like the five year survival rate is something like uh, 2%, I think. 
Jeez, I didn't realise it was that bad. Yeah, and it hasn't changed in like 30 years. Um, yeah. And well, it's now t- over 10 years since we made that doc, and I'm not sure it's changed that much since then, although I'm not up to date with the current figures. Um, yeah. But in cancer, five years is considered survival. So that's a, if you make it to five years, you're counted as a cancer survivor. I, again, I'm probably getting some of the language wrong, and I'm sorry if that's, it's not quite correct, but this in generality. Um, and so he, um, it was coming up for his five-year uh, survival post-diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. He was doing this bike ride. And so we wanted to tell that story. And we also wanted to sort of explore why it had been so underfunded and why it was such a brutal cancer and why the survival rates are so low. Um, so we followed his journey. And um, the sad thing was that, like very early on when we he's a great guy and he we were early on we were like look if we're telling this story we need to think about in terms of drama and how the story is told and you need to think about things like what obstacles could exist so he was like filming like video diaries of himself and then we'd catch up with him every couple of weeks and do a bit of, of another interview or and very early on in this chat with him he was like we were like it would be you know really good at like the halfway or the two thirds point if there was like a complication or a difficulty for you to overcome. And he was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know if I had to go back into hospital or something for, you know, the condition got worse and then I couldn't, you know, I had to sort of overcome that to do the bike ride. And we were like, yeah, that's something like that. And he was sort of quite lighthearted sort of talking about that. But then Mm. that is the exact thing that did happen. Oh, Um, really? And he when the bike ride was starting, he was still in the hospital bed. So his team had to start without him and then he had to catch up when yeah. he was healthy, like a, a day later, he sort of, so I, I think he managed to get out, start the bike ride, do the first couple of hundred meters and then sort of back into bed a bit more, um, you know, uh, medical care and then resumed and joined and he managed to finish it and he got to Krakow and we flew out there and sort of filmed him finishing and it was great but he he passed away I think about two three months later oh. uh, and he made it to five years and that was sort of to him was like a huge achievement but like filming something like that where you get to really know someone and you you know someone who's going through something like that that's so difficult in his family um you know, it's tough in a different way because you also then become, um, you're telling his story. So there's like a weight on you. And especially, you know, then I'm, I was 24. I think that's, you know, sort of as a an age, that sort of age, it's sort of, there's a lot on you yeah. to sort of be responsible and sort of, uh, mature about how you tell this person's story but he was he was so good and such a good person to work with that it was like we didn't feel he was just like I want the story told and you know you include what you've got to include and um, it was used as like the it was broadcast on tv for like the launch of pancreatic cancer awareness week the very first one in yeah. the UK um, back in 2009 I think it was with the first one um and so and it still is like available to watch on uh youtube we put it up on youtube and occasionally have to go in and delete comments from people being like oh i tried out this amazing miracle cure that's from this doctor and it's like oh it's one of these cranks and that's the horrible thing around cancer is that there's so you're so desperate for like anything yeah that you will turn you will turn to uh you know charlatans and snake oil salesmen that that again is a really horrible thing um and so yeah it's still like you know 11 12 years later having to be moderating the comments on a documentary we made because you've got maniacs coming on here and selling false hope to people it's really cruel isn't it a really cruel thing to do yeah yeah. Anyway, what was the question? <laughs> uh, well, oh, well, I mean, what um, what is it called? If people want to look at it, oh, it's called uh, the Silent Cancer, and it's on Turtle Canyon Media's YouTube page. Uh, you know, it's like an hour long documentary shot on mini DV cameras, which we we had at the time, so it's in 
glorious standard definition. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't watched it for a couple of years, but I don't, I think it's, I think it's nice. And I think it's, you know, fairly well done, especially for something that I made with, with a v- big team of good people um, quite a long time ago. Um, but yeah, I would consider that sort of like the first when, when I was like, Oh, we are doing this properly. Now this is our proper job and this is, we're yeah. making proper stuff now we're not just kids mucking about it was like a like a uh line in the sand of like after this is when it all started properly yeah because like 18 is very young to be starting your own business uh, uh, it's stupid but we have yeah. <laughs> an average white man <laughs> <laughs> and of a, a t- an 18 year old I, I, yeah, I wish I, mean, I knew as much as I did when I was 18 <laughs> yeah yeah (laughs) very wise person absolutely staggering when I think back to be like yeah we can run a company (laughs) don't worry about it just do it and he to be fair he did yeah I mean through um you know the benefits of um by that time parents who had uh benefited hugely from the housing boom and had had enough money to like have us live there you know to pay not pay rent and things like that so like we fully took advantage advantage of the advantages we had and I think you know this industry is really tough for a lot of people because it absolutely leans towards people who can do unpaid internships or who can you know live in areas where there is more work and things like that. And there's something needs to definitely be done to sort of address that balance because it's not cool. No, it's, um, it is straight. Well, yeah, it's just sad, isn't it? I suppose that they think it's, it's jobs that you enjoy doing, you know, stuff that you like doing and people will take advantage of you in order to do it. Right. Yes. And if you're, um, financially, comfortable enough then you can do those things yeah but if you are having to pay bills and and you exist hand to mouth then you're not going to be able to do that and you're going to fall behind and that is not not a good situation no it's um yeah it's very exclusive exclusionary both of those things yeah Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, so are are you ultimately glad that you didn't go university what would you have studied what, what was the plan I was due to study like film and media oh, okay. um, at Winchester oh um, I chose Winchester because um I could get in there with three C's I think so I knew that I didn't have to try ah uh, yeah solid enjoy just be like cool I can relax you don't <laughs> need to do any work I can get there um because I was able to do exams to you know my brain somehow works that I can just do an exam and be and scrape by yeah <laughs> um, I'm lucky enough there to have that sort of advantage I'm not saying it's I don't think that being good at exams makes you smart it just means that you know how to rig the game slightly yeah um, it's um it's a stupid way of measuring intelligence isn't it it's like I know that you are very good at learning and understanding things but if you can't put it down on this piece of paper in this time frame uh, then you know none of that genuinely is wild isn't it it's like yeah. such a it's such a specific skill and people there must be people out there who absolutely way smarter than me but would do so much more prep for an exam and then not be able to do you know achieve it because that's not the way they express themselves that's not the way but for me a weirdly a timed thing made me go oh cool this is like a specific thing that happens in a specific time and then it's over so my brain was just works well in those sort of situations so I could be like oh great I'll do that I'll do that and then yeah so Winchester were denied my ability to do exams to passing (laughs) standard with no prep and I bet that they are upset every day uh, (laughs) (laughs) that that happened yeah I, I went to uni, but it was, uh, I was in my uh, like early to mid 20s. So mm. by that point, no one gives a shit what you got in your A levels, which is Interesting. Yeah, yeah. a cheat if you fancy yeah. it. If anyone who's listening fancies it, just give it a few years and no one cares. Um, so, what, how did you apply? Did you have to be like, 
we want to do it. And they were just like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, cool. Come and do it. Yeah. yeah, they just needed the money, really. Uh, there weren't too many people wanting to do the course that I did. There were only three of us. So they were just like, yeah, okay, come on then. What did you do? Uh, scenic constructions. It was like building scenery for theatres, which oh, is nice. very specific. And again, it's one of those jobs, you know, like, uh, you know, you think, well, I assume that there would be a career, you know, a career at the end of it. But there is. More. Yeah. If you if you free if you're willing to freelance and you can afford to freelance, then yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's hard, isn't it, when you've like got to pay your bills? Yes. Waiting for the phone call to come. So it's also interesting that whole the the whole freelance industry as well is so weighted towards extroverts. It's it's astounding, mm-hmm. and that that's a, a separate element to it, aside from sort of class or race or gender issues, which all exist within it. Um, and all need to be battled, but there is a genuine thing with um, personality types that if you're an extrovert, people want to work with you way more because yeah. it doesn't matter how good your work is, you were fun to work with and you're outgoing and you knew how to make people feel happy whilst they're there. Because if you're an introvert, maybe it's quite intense. I, I know, for example, like when I have to do something now, like if I'm directing something and I have to spend like, three or four days in charge of a crew I feel exhausted afterwards because Mm. all of my energy has gone into being extroverted and being outgoing and managing people's sort of um you know emotions and abilities and what they need to be doing and absolutely leaves me completely drained afterwards so I just sort of need like two three days of doing absolutely nothing yeah that's something that early on it early on I would really struggle with because it was just like I don't know how to sometimes you turn up and you're just like I can't look anyone in the eye I can't because I'm too tired and exhausted of it but you'd have to force yourself through those things and I yeah I think it I I definitely know of people who um have ended up not working in industry because stuff like that was too much difficult to maintain yeah it's um I know like a lot of people say that about working uh you know like being self-employed and and freelancing and things it's um it's just it's it's, uh incredible how exhausting just talking to people is and just yeah it's performing isn't it I suppose um especially if you are yeah if you are an introvert and then you're suddenly having to talk to a big group of people or you're having to like be the focus of attention or things like that it just slowly (laughs) drains you of your of your energy over the course of a day or whatever it is is difficult I think Um, yeah and I think identifying that on sets and in in jobs is probably something that should be taken into account um and I know that like running Turtle Canyon the three of us who run it me Al and Nick we have different working styles and like occasionally there are arguments or there's like you know tensions raised but then there's over the years we've also had discussions where we've been like we have to acknowledge we we work in different ways and we have different ways of approaching problems and I think that's very important to sort of be aware of when you're working with people so like worst jobs maybe is just literally a case of who you're working with and the fact that there's been everyone's butting against each other and it's not it's not necessarily the job is bad it's that not enough effort has been put into making the working environment healthy yeah absolutely I think that there are very few bad jobs but there are a lot of bad managers and bad people not bad people but just wrong people for the yes yeah yes (laughs) yeah that's a very nice way of putting it dickheads (laughs) there's a lot of dickheads (laughs) and fuckwits let's not forget fuckwits oh yeah those guys of course yeah (laughs) (laughs) exclude them Uh, (laughs) so i i mean i'm gonna say what what's your best job but i think i think i know is it that is it that one uh what the 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 paper round yeah yeah Genuinely, right, I was a projectionist at the cinema. So when I started at the cinema, I worked on the, fl- on the floor, yeah. serving popcorn, all of that 
was fun. You know, I absolutely love films. It was so exciting that I got this job. It was the first ever job interview I'd ever gone to. So it was like, oh, oh my God. God, I was so excited to sort of get this and be like, I'm, I'm autonomous. I'm doing my own thing. Um, and then when this role for projectionist came up, I was like, I'd started the business, but like, we weren't making any money. We were just, no. just about sort of surviving. So it was like, I sort of do need this other job and we can do both at the same time. So did that and about three months after starting as a projectionist, they were like, um, I think we'd started to get somewhere with the company and I was like, can we go, can I go down to just one day a week yeah. and I'll fill in other dates if necessary. And they were up for that. And it was like, oh, wow. great. So I got to, for the first, so this was until I quit it in 2009. So we started the company in late 2002. So genuinely six, six and a half years of um or like five and a half years of being a projectionist um doing sort of one day a week and then little bits here and there until in 2009 we could pay ourselves an actual wage from the company proper wage um was just great being able to like put together films um basically when i finished was sort of when digital was coming in properly and digital projection took over so yeah. i was working with real film splicing together like lord of the rings was on nine reels oh my gosh together <laughs> yeah um you know put doing like screenings after hours for like staff or friends being like oh i'm gonna is it okay if i just watch this thing tonight and i'll lock up sort of just having keys to a cinema was just like this is amazing yeah. i loved it it sounds very exciting and like the only the image that I have is like inglorious bastards yeah, you know yeah, was, yeah, it, was it like was it so like... many Nazis <laughs> genuinely every, every day. a week would go by and we'd have a little tally up and it'd be like how many you got this week bud <laughs> you need to stop oh. burning the screens down <laughs> <laughs> that is true we did unfortunately go from a 10 screen to a one screen but you know the 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 payoff was the amount of Nazis that perished. Yeah, always. <laughs> yeah. And if you yeah. do like a quote for this episode, I think that it should be the payoff was the number of Nazis that perished. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be the, the tagline. Uh, yeah. and, <laughs> and then people don't need to listen to it. Uh, they, they just know. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think many people could disagree with that, but it is weird that Nazism has made a comeback. Like, did we not establish yeah. that these are the bad guys? I feel like it's the same with um, centre partings, right? Yeah. Centre partings have now made a comeback and Gen Z are like, it's so lame to have a side parting. Mm. Um, but we were there, well, I was there at the, the beginning. I remember centre partings. I remember what we went through and I remember the horrors. Yeah, it's appalling. And Gen Z don't remember that. And that's the problem is there's a generational shift and they don't remember the horrors. And that's why Nazis have come back because there's been such a gap that the people who are alive to experience it aren't alive anymore. And so they're not here to remind us of the horrors of it. And I'm here, I'm talking to every Gen Z I know. I'm saying we don't want curtains. We don't want curtains. Please, please let us not go back. (laughs) (laughs) But they're not listening. No, because like they do say that you shouldn't do it twice. If you did it the first time, you shouldn't do it again. So maybe yeah, that's why yeah. there's no old Nazis. That's um, true. Yeah, they're all they're all fresh, young Nazis. Yeah, who, yeah, they've got their they've got their TikTok and their and their Club Penguin sites and their um, <laughs> and they're having a great time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the big Nazi problem on Club Penguin. <laughs> yeah, we're getting uh, banned off that for swearing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah like uh, as well comedy then how um how yeah. is, it is where does it that probably, rank yeah. on the the good and good to bad <laughs> so i job. think projectionism projectionism projectionist um it gets there because i've romanticized it as well because there was probably yeah. loads of really shit bits and there's loads of bits which just boring or whatever but like yeah i was young and it was I was doing like this job and it was like almost a close connection to the industry that I wanted to be working in. Yeah. And now I sort of work in that industry. It's less romantic. Yeah. Um, it's work. <laughs> but stand-up comedy definitely was, so I started first ever gig was 2006. Mm-hmm. 
and for the first few years I would go sort of from sort of loving it when he'd have a good gig to then hating it when I was like what am I doing because it's like I didn't know what I was doing on stage so I was just doing random stuff and I wasn't I had this sort of weird discrepancy of being like I'm not myself on stage and so it feels sort of maybe to do with the introversion sort of thing exhausting to pretend to be someone else yeah which is sort of what you have to do sometimes when you're an introvert when you're out in a social or work situation you have to sort of pretend to be this outgoing person yeah um and that's I think I struggled with and then sort of um in like 2010 sort of time I'd um somebody kept booking me for gigs Bobby Carroll don't know if you know Bobby Carroll he used to be a comedian he's now a promoter he kept booking me even though I'd quit and I'd go (laughs) all right I'll go and do his gigs because I like him yeah and would just go and mess around and just improvise stuff and it sort of uh relit the fire of like oh I'm being myself and it was like a genuine thing and so it was exciting and I think that's the excitement of stand-up is when you are being yourself on stage and making a room full of people who didn't know you before laugh yeah it's so intoxicating right yeah it really is um particularly (laughs) I suppose as an introvert like people don't having people listen to you uh, yeah 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 see you (laughs) which you know like if you're at school and you're in a room of 30 people an introvert is never going to thrive there, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember being, I remember the first time I ever said a joke out loud in school. Yeah. And it got a laugh. And I was like, what was I being? 16, 17? And the alpha of the class just went, oh, he does have batteries in him. <laughs> and it immediately was like, oh, for fuck's sake. I can't wow. Yeah, luckily my friend, who I still write comedy with and we still do stuff together, he immediately set out, he's the more outgoing one of us, he just immediately went, yeah, whereas you've got Duracells in you because you don't ever fucking shut up. (laughs) And I was like, yes! (laughs) Um, (laughs) Screw you! (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think that that's... And now, like, for me doing like gigs around the country and things like that is fine and so if if you're doing nice gigs you know like excess malarkey or stuff a little wonder or plosive yeah. you know they're like really nice gigs because they've got a good audience and they sort of the audiences know what they're getting yeah i like that and you know i think we discussed it before the record there's something to be said for going out and fighting an audience on a, like, a pretty you know you sort of miss that sometimes on you know a really uh, a boisterous night out there is something to be said for that but doing my own show is absolutely the thing that I love doing and I have you know the start of the pandemic was I had like three dates left of my tour of my last show yeah and they were they were like the ones I'd been looking forward to doing oh um, no and so it was like oh that's annoying because I really love doing that show and it's such like you know it's like my sixth solo show so I feel like I know what I'm doing I love like doing my uh, my shows are sort of they're I, I think they're, they're funny but like <laughs> they are sort of quite tricksy and sort of I put quite a lot of work into sort of structuring them and writing them in in a way that feels a little bit different um and yeah. so the last one um I was really enjo- enjoying that tour and doing it yeah, and I think that's the time when you come off and you've done a your own show and it's gone well. It's like that is the it's the best job ever because you've literally you've walked on cold and you've done your own show to a room full of people for an hour, an hour and ten, and then and if they've liked it, it's so great. If they don't like it, that's when it's the worst job. You just go <laughs> crushing. Oh, cool. So that literally that's my personality. That's everything. That's my thoughts. And they've gone, no, thank you. I don't like it. Yeah, I suppose that's it with it. All, all with comedy, all successes and all failures are, are completely your own. You did it all. Yeah. Which is and then why you have to drive home for two hours, <laughs> swilling in that. Yeah, which is, I suppose, why it's so painful to. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long 
Um, how long does it take you to sort of write your shows? What's your sort of process? Because they say like it's going to be one a year, right? Yeah. But that sounds like an awful lot to me. <laughs> I got into that from, from show one to five. Mm-hmm. I did one a year. Wow. But like my friend, you know, Alex Keeley, you must know. Yeah. Alex. Yeah. He, so I direct his shows. And so yeah. we often are like, working in quite close proximity and he uh he's referenced my show before being like seeing a preview late in july just before the edinburgh fringe yeah hearing a line and being like oh maybe i should mention to him that he should get rid of that that's a bit seems sort of irrelevant a bit weird and then seeing the show again two weeks later in edinburgh and being like oh no that line is the absolute cornerstone of the show and that is the key part that everything else revolves around i can't believe i didn't see that at the time yeah um (laughs) And that's sort of what happened is that my show sort of is so loose up until about the end of July. And then suddenly it sort of coalesces into the thing I was aiming for. Yeah. And sometimes that works because our show I did was with Steve Dunn directed it. Mm-hmm. And that was, it's so tricksy because it's sort of is a fake choose your own adventure show. Yeah. Um, so the audience the the whole point of it is I explain the whole show is about choice and how these big choices can change your life and then I point out that the audience interaction I did at the beginning the three questions I asked to one person changed the course of the show that I did yeah um and then I pull out a flow chart from an envelope that's been on stage the whole time and I show how their answers changed what show they got except that my tech at one point in the show comes on stage for something and switches out the envelope for the envelope that represent with the flow chart that represents the answers they gave. So I do the yeah. same show every day, <laughs> but there's eight different flow charts in envelopes at the back of the stage that get switched out depending on the answers they give to those questions. Right. Um, so like when we figured out that's how we were doing this show was such like an exciting moment, but that was in like April. And I knew that before then that the show was about choices. So mm-hmm. like that this particular show took sort of, 18 months to write and so I wrote all the material up to then was about binary choices yeah and then in the April we worked out that was the structure that the whole show was going to revolve around and then it wasn't until the end of July where we finally actually made it all work and we we, um, Sam Fletcher who's a magician and comedian came on and was like a magic consultant for it to work (laughs) out how we were going to do this trick and how we were going to make it work yeah um, and also the fact that we needed to people to not know there was a magic trick. So we had a misdirect magic trick that yeah. <laughs> made sure people weren't looking at what the actual magic trick was. Ah, uh, um, yeah. Pen and teller over here. Magic trick. Yeah. <laughs> what was the magic trick? Was it cards? It blows uh, no, my it, mind. It, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to chocolate. understand. Sorry, go on. It was a chocolate bar. Uh, yeah. They... Uh, I'm like, what's, I had a bit of material about a chocolate bar. I asked someone what their favourite chocolate bar was. And then when I opened this briefcase at the end, their chocolate bar was in there. But again, we had a big bag of chocolate bars at the back of the stage. <laughs> and if they said something random, then we would just, the tech would just run out and buy it from the nearby shop. <laughs> um, but it turns out most people say dairy milk. Yeah. Or, or double decker or crunchy. Really? They're the top three. Genuinely, I think there was only one person that said like a Mars bar and one person who said like a milker and that was it. Everything else was crunchy, double-decker or dairy milk. Wow, people are so basic, aren't they? I hate them. Pathetic. (laughs) 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 I fucking love magic though. It blows my mind. I don't want to understand it. I just just want to watch it and be in awe. I, I... Really love it. And I remember reading something by Darren Brown about it, which is the shelf life of a magician is short because their entire persona is, I am smarter than you and I'm going to make you look thick. Yeah. (laughs) And there's only so long that you can watch that and be impressed before eventually you become like, well, like every dad that t- that is goes to a magic show where they just try to guess or they explain immediately afterwards, oh, yeah, yeah, he did this, did that. There's something about dads at magic shows that hate being tricked by in front of their kids. Yeah. And also, I think dads at comedy shows. Yeah. Why Why do they go? 
And they're like, they go and they're like, I'm not going to find any of this funny. You know, why don't you stay at home then? I'm the funny one. No, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. It's fine to not be funny. They can hide off, pal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, yeah, that sounds um, that sounds really uh, interesting. I had a question, and I was going to—I can't remember what the question was. Now. Sorry, I talked for too long. I'd say the worst—the yeah. uh, worst part of stand-up was when I got booed off at Green Man Festival oh. in 2010. But it's meant um, to be nice at Green Man. Well, exactly. So what did I do? I <laughs> what did, did you do? Made. <laughs> I did something that I was doing something super meta and somebody went, tell a fucking joke, mate. And oh. I then took that as a, right, well, I'm not going to tell a fucking joke. So I had a, pr- a very small conversation with the boy on the front row about why that man was wrong. Yeah. And it was such an arrogant, pathetic move from me. But it meant <laughs> that the last five minutes of my 15 minute set was like really lame. <laughs> um and then it meant that like of the 700 people i'd say about 150 200 of them were booing and then wow. like 150 200 were like clapping and being like you're all right mate it's fine and the rest <laughs> were just like what the hell was that so that was a low point and um i didn't get booked to do green man for another five years after that i had to re- claw back um <sighs> my reputation um, but I did in, um, I think it would have been 2018. I went there. Um, I did it in 2015 and it was good. But then in 2018, um, some friends, the friend next to you said the Duracell battery line. He yeah. came along as well. Um, and I got to do stand up and do it, did, did an hour there and like had a lovely, lovely gig. And maybe that's sort of a best worst thing of being like the low of the low of doing Green Man to like friends seeing you do it and at a festival and doing well. Yeah. And being like, oh, that's good. There's a nice journey to that. I think yeah. Stand Up offers a lot of those sort of narratives where you can go back and do a gig that you've died at or you can do well in front of a comedian who you respect. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, It's strange as well how like you can do the same thing at the same night an hour apart two different shows and die on your ass in one and blow the roof off in another it's absolutely wild and we'll never understand it fully no i don't get it part of the joy i guess (laughs) yeah uh the the crushing joy (laughs) 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 oh that's great well i'm glad that you managed to go back and um and do do it pro- do it properly do it well yeah get it you, was nice it get was your nice. closure <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, do you think that you will um continue the tour of the show um or, or is that um well so your question was, hey how do you write show which yeah. we won't offer one normally it's yeah one a year and that it sort of works like that but like i have now written a show that works on zoom and it's oh, deliberately nice. like it embraces that technology and is deliberately about sort of the nature of live stand-up and whether it can be replicated online and yeah so now I have that which came about because Colin Bowles who runs Triple CP venue in Leicester was like I was booked to do Leicester Mm -hmm. when it was going to be a live thing and when it moved to online he was like I think you should still do it I think you could probably do something with like your videos and you could do something that works really well on zoom Mm-hmm. that did inspire to me to be like oh I'll do that so it's now I have a new show by accident yeah and it's sort of like I love that old show and I'd love to do it again I'd love to do it at McCunthless and Aberystwyth and Wells and you know nice festivals around the country but then have I have I moved on is that that's the other thing with like shows in the UK stand-up shows is I feel like each show you write is sort of a product of that time yeah, and as absolutely. you move forward, it's sort of it maybe is sort of like less relevant. I don't know. Yeah. To yourself. Yeah, it's um, it's in it's. I wonder what the scene will be like on the other side of COVID. Mm. If I have to hear COVID jokes, I, I like I'm giving up. I don't want, you know. <laughs> but um, it's really great that you managed to lean into the Zoom thing because I'll be honest, we were going to do Leicester Festival and we just got our deposit back. So um, 
it's uh it, you know it's it's good that you um but like shows a, a commitment to the art and a determination to be like actually no let's um let let's do it yeah, I, I genuinely, I don't think I would have, I would have probably just gotten the deposit back if Colin hadn't have replied and said, no, I think you could do something with this. And like, I'd been putting out Twitter videos. He was like, you know, you could just put some of them out and then you talk a little bit and then you play some more. And the show is sort of that, but it uses, it uses those videos as misdirects yeah. in a way that I like <laughs> to use <laughs> magic as much as possible. Um, or the, the principles of magic. So um, the film, The Prestige, yeah. Christopher Nolan I always use as a starting point for my shows because it's um, the start of the prestige Michael Caine explains the entire film in about two minutes and then the film proceeds to then do that over the course of two hours right and I really like the chutzpah to just say to the audience this is what's going to happen over the course of the next two hours but the audience don't notice because they're not primed and they're not ready yeah so I like to do that with stand-up to be like this is what the show is about and then do it properly over yeah the rest of the hour <laughs> so I'm gonna watch that film I'll just watch the first two minutes and be like oh yeah I get it okay yeah 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 off oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well that sounds great um I I think we have reached our time uh but it has it has been lovely uh, talking with you. And, um, I don't know how much I've answered about jobs, but no, <laughs> yeah, no. I, I mean, it's all work, isn't it? Every <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, what what are you up to? What are you doing? What would you like to? Well, you plug? said you said if you have to hear one more joke about COVID, um, <laughs> how a, a, a series that's just come out on Vimeo on demand, and hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, will be available on another platform that I can't confirm yet, but Ooh. if do have confirmation by then i'll let you know and you can pop that in the description or something yeah. uh, it's called grave new world and it is about what life is like emerging from a pandemic um it's a it's sort of like panorama meets the one show it's got yeah. a big old cast of comedians um so people like heidi regan um sadi razmat sunil patel annie mcgrath james a caster rose johnson dan cook rajiv carrier um and it's sort of like different segments. So like how a petrol station is now different, how a cinema is different, how a theme park is different. And I'm hosting it. I'm sort of leading through and it's, I, I think it's funny. It got some nice reviews when it, when it came out and um, you can uh, buy or rent it from Vimeo on demand. That's really exciting. Where can people yeah. find you? Um, on Twitter, Stuart Laws. But uh, if you want to see that web series, go to stuartlaws.com and it will be the first thing that comes up. Smashing. Well, thank Great. you. Uh, thank you for being, being a guest. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you very much for having me. <laughs>